Hi, and welcome to Hella Healthy, the world's sickest podcast. I'm Dr. Serenity Della Porta, your guide on this journey through health. On today's episode, I will be talking about health behavior change. This is actually the number one topic most people are interested in regarding health. Most people who value health and want to learn about it are primarily interested in how they can adopt a healthier lifestyle or have healthier habits. Some people are more interested in helping a loved one adopt those healthy behaviors. Between these two things, people wanting to master healthy behaviors is the driving force behind the booming wellness industry. Unfortunately, much of what is popular in the wellness industry today is completely divorced from any evidence regarding what actually works to help people change. Let's explore some of the theories of behavior change and identify a few of the techniques and factors that researchers have highlighted as key drivers of change. When discussing behavior change, we are essentially discussing the factors that drive behavior in general. In other words, what are the influences that come together to push people toward or away from particular behaviors? Of course, the answer is many factors do that, but today I want to highlight some of the recurring themes we see across this area of research and set the stage for future explorations into episodes that focus on specific areas of change, such as changes around exercise or improving nutrition. When thinking about the ways different factors influence health behaviors, we can identify many pathways of influence. We can start at the cellular level, thinking of how biology and physiology might influence health behaviors. We can also look at how a person's temperament and personality influence their health behaviors. In addition, our beliefs about what is good or normal influence health behaviors. As we discussed on our last episode, we can examine how key relationships and social dynamics influence health behaviors. It is also important to consider how aspects of the environment influence health behaviors, like access to walkable spaces or noise pollution. There are many theories of health behavior that have proven useful, but not all of them equally so. I will briefly discuss most of them here and a few we will dive deeper into on future episodes. One of the first theories about health behavior is called the health belief model, which was proposed in the late 1950s. The health belief model states that people's health behaviors are driven by four factors. The first factor is perceived threat of a particular disease, which is driven by the person's perceived susceptibility to that disease, along with their perceptions regarding the severity of that disease. The second factor is perceived benefits of changing the behavior to avoid the disease. The third factor is perceived barriers in the way of changing the behavior. And lastly, the fourth factor is perceived self-efficacy regarding the behavior. Self-efficacy refers to a person's belief about whether or not they can effectively carry out a particular behavior to achieve a desired outcome. Let's walk through an example of what this might look like in real life. 
Let's say a person is considering adopting a better diet to try and avoid future heart disease. The health belief model teaches us that the likelihood of this person changing their eating habits would depend on whether or not the person perceives heart disease to be a threat to them. If the individual does not perceive heart disease as a threat to them, they will not be very likely to change their eating habits in order to protect their health in the future. What determines whether or not they perceive heart disease as a threat? One influence is whether the person believes they are susceptible to developing heart disease. Another influence is whether the person thinks heart disease is very severe. If the person believes that they are not susceptible to developing heart disease, or that heart disease is not a very severe condition, they will not perceive heart disease as a threat and will not be motivated to change their eating in order to avoid it. If the person does perceive heart disease as a threat to them, other factors can influence whether or not they will change their eating in order to avoid it. The first is whether or not they perceive that changes in eating are an effective way to actually avoid heart disease. The person must believe that eating a better diet will actually reduce their risk of developing heart disease. If they do not believe that this benefit truly exists, they will not be motivated to change the behavior. On the other hand, even if the person believes there's a benefit to eating better, they may still feel that there are barriers in the way of changing. Perhaps the person has a very busy schedule and does not know how to prepare fresh foods. Or perhaps the person is a very picky eater and struggles to find foods that they can enjoy while sticking to a healthy diet. These barriers influence the likelihood that the person will adopt new eating habits. Lastly, the person's beliefs about whether they are capable of eating better are highly influential on that behavior. As a reminder, this is called self-efficacy. Even if the person believes heart disease is a threat to them and believes in the benefits of eating well, and there are not any perceived barriers to eating better, they may not adopt new eating habits simply because they do not believe they are capable of doing so. Our beliefs about what we are capable of doing greatly influence our behaviors. For many people, self-efficacy is one of the bigger issues standing in the way of change. We must believe we are capable of making the change to begin with. There has been substantial research based on the health belief model. Findings across various studies using this model have found that perceived barriers are the most powerful predictor of health behavior. It is really important how we think about the things that stand in our way of changing. Sometimes these perceived barriers are reflections of reality, meaning they are things we genuinely must overcome in order to achieve change. For example, when trying to become more active, if you live in a less walkable area or somewhere that it is dangerous to go outside, that is a genuine barrier to change. On the other hand, some of the things we perceive as barriers have to do with more psychosocial dynamics. We often feel intimidated to take that first step when overcoming years of bad habits. 
it's very common for people to cite difficulty getting started as a barrier to change. The logistics involved in adopting new habits are often overwhelming. Indeed, because our routines and habits are so ingrained over time, it becomes increasingly difficult to know when and how to introduce change into them. In this way, our routines and habits become barriers to change themselves. Barriers to change have been studied with regard to specific diseases and specific behaviors. For example, researchers might study the barriers people cite regarding wearing condoms or getting mammography. Of course, the things people cite as barriers vary across the behavior being studied. The barriers cited when studying whether people will get a colonoscopy are going to be quite different than the things cited as barriers to increasing physical activity. Interestingly, however, perceived barriers has been found to be the strongest predictor across studies, regardless of the behavior or disease studied. This fact demonstrates the importance of perceived barriers themselves. Targeted interventions based on the health belief model have been shown to successfully help people reduce their perceptions of barriers and increase their perceptions of benefits, ultimately improving people's ability to adopt healthy habits. For example, women given information demonstrating the benefits of mammography and addressing or debunking certain perceptions of barriers to getting mammography were more likely to choose to get screened. If you give people good information and good access, the likelihood of healthy behavior greatly increases. It is useful to know the barriers and benefits regarding any particular behavior if we wish to change that behavior for the better. It's worth sitting down and listing out the things you perceive as being in your way and listing out the benefits you perceive there to be in making the change. Given that barriers were found to be the strongest influence on health behavior, focus specifically on the things you see as being in your way of changing. This process can tell you a lot about what is influencing your path to change. For example, it is very informative if one of the barriers you list is a relationship with someone in your life or certain job responsibilities you carry. That is very useful and often actionable information. The theory of reasoned action is another popular theory of health behavior that has been rigorously studied. A related theory is the theory of planned behavior. Both of these theories focus on motivational factors as determining the likelihood of performing any specific health behavior. Both of these theories assume that the best predictor of our behavior is our intentions, and intentions are viewed as being driven by our attitudes toward the behavior and our beliefs about the social norms regarding that behavior. Let's talk through the same example of eating well to avoid heart disease, but this time using the perspective offered by the theory of reasoned action and the theory of planned behavior. Here, we would focus on whether or not the person sets an intention to change their eating habits. We would predict that the person's intention is a function of their attitude toward eating healthier, along with their perceptions regarding the norms around eating. 
A person who thinks it's going to be very unpleasant to eat differently will have a bad attitude about the behavior. They will therefore be less likely to have an intention to change the behavior. Likewise, if a person believes it is not very common or is not the norm to eat these healthier foods, they will also be less likely to have the intention to change. There is tremendous support in the research literature for the importance of our attitudes, beliefs about norms, and our intentions all greatly impacting our health behaviors. A recent meta-analysis combining the findings from over 200 experimental studies found that when we are able to change people's attitudes and their beliefs about social norms, it can change a person's intentions, and this translates into changes in health behavior. It is rare to have experimental work in this area for various reasons. Most of the evidence we have for the relationships between various factors and health behaviors is correlational. The fact that we see this relationship in an experimental setting means a lot. It is evidence for a causal role of our attitudes and our beliefs about social norms and our intentions in driving health behavior. The other factor this meta-analysis found significantly impacts health behavior is self-efficacy, which I mentioned earlier in the episode. Therefore, when considering your health behaviors and how to change them, it is very useful to consider these four things. First, your attitude about the behavior. Simply put, your attitude is your assessment of how good or bad that particular behavior is or how good or bad performing that behavior would be. Second, think about the norms around that behavior. Social norms refer to whether we think it is a common thing for people to do, or whether we think we will be viewed as strange if we perform the behavior. It is very difficult to violate social norms. If changing your behavior makes you feel like you stand out and will be singled out as atypical, you will avoid changing it. Third, reflect on your intention to change the behavior. Do you really have an intention to change or are you still thinking about it? Lastly, consider your self-efficacy regarding the behavior. Do you believe you are capable of adopting this new behavior and getting results? Let's talk through another example to highlight the importance of these factors. Let's say a young person has just started college and is battling increasing levels of anxiety. She sees a therapist and gets some tools to help manage the anxiety. However, in order to manage her anxiety, she has to begin using the tools she was given on a daily basis. One of the tools is positive self-affirmations that she is instructed to say out loud each day. If she believes that this is a completely ridiculous or very unpleasant thing to do, she will not have the intention to start this new behavior. That would be a bad attitude, leading to no intention to change. If she believes it is an unusual thing to do or that she is going to be viewed by her peers as very strange for doing it, she also will not set an intention to adopt the behavior. This reflects her beliefs about social norms. Finally, if she believes she is not capable of saying these things and feeling better, she will not adopt 
the behavior. This is her self-efficacy. Based on what researchers have found, if we were able to improve this woman's attitude about saying self-affirmations and help her understand that self-affirmations are a good and normal thing to do and encourage her to believe that she is capable of doing it, she would be more likely to start saying self-affirmations to help reduce her anxiety. This is primarily because her better attitude, positive beliefs about the normalcy of the behavior, and self-efficacy will increase her intention to change her behavior, and this will translate into real change. But how, you might ask, can you change attitudes or beliefs regarding norms or self-efficacy for health behaviors? The methods for doing this generally involve education and activities around specific health behaviors. Interestingly, it seems to be the emotional part of attitudes that drives most of the behavior. Consider carefully how you feel about making the change. What would it take for you to feel positively about it? What are your beliefs regarding how normal the behavior is? And how capable do you feel of performing the given behavior. The goal should be for you to view the health behavior change in a positive way, having both positive feelings about it and seeing it as a beneficial change. It is also important that you try to view the new behavior as one that is common or normal to do, something that a majority of people view as normal or engage in themselves. If not, Why do you believe the behavior is abnormal or uncommon? This will influence how you think about and engage in the behavior. For example, when college students are taught about binge drinking, they can be educated about the statistics in two different ways. You can say 30% of college students have a problem with binge drinking, or you could say 70% of college students choose not to binge drink. Much of public health education has focused on the smaller proportion of people who engage in a risky problem behavior, when we should be highlighting that the majority of people are engaging in the healthy behavior choice. If we focus on the 30% of college students that have a problem with binge drinking, we come away with the perception that many college students have a problem with binge drinking. If you are a college student thinking about drinking, you might think binge drinking is a normal thing to engage in. But if messages focus on the 70% who refuse to binge drink, college students hearing and seeing that message will be more likely to think of binge drinking as an abnormal and unhealthy behavior. So if messages focus on the 30% of college students that have a problem with drinking, students come away with the perception that it is a normal thing to do. But if the messages emphasize that 70% of college students actually choose not to binge drink, students getting that message are more likely to view binge drinking as abnormal and unhealthy and will be less likely to do it. This example shows how the way we frame the same information can give us different perceptions about norms. Think about the behaviors you wanna change or those that you want a loved one to change, and consider the beliefs you hold regarding how normal or common the healthy behavior choice is. Are you viewing it in a way that is both realistic and likely to help you change? Could you perhaps reframe things 
and view the normalcy of the behavior in a more helpful way. What about how ready or willing a person is to make a change? The trans-theoretical model of behavior change highlights that people go through different stages of change. The first stage is pre-contemplation, where the person has no intention to take action within the next six months. This is technically before the person has even made a real decision to change. Once the person is seriously thinking about changing, setting an intention to change within the next six months, they are now in the contemplation stage. Next, the person enters the preparation stage, meaning they intend to take action within the next 30 days and have begun taking a few steps in that direction. Once the person has begun to make significant changes, they are in the action stage. For the first six months of performing the new behavior, they remain in this action stage. If they maintain the behavior past six months, the person enters the maintenance stage. This stage can be indefinite and certainly lasts a very long time. Sometimes people adopt a new habit with such success they no longer have the temptation to go back to their old ways of doing things. When a person no longer is tempted to revert to the old behavior and has 100% confidence they will always engage in this new healthy behavior, they enter the termination stage of behavior change. The evidence for the trans-theoretical model is not as extensive as the health belief model or the theory of reasoned action and theory of planned behavior models. However, there is some evidence that viewing health behavior change in these stages is useful. Where are you or your loved one on these stages? The things that will best serve you to move toward change look different at each stage. If a person has a problem with drinking too much alcohol, when they are in the pre-contemplation stage, it will be necessary to gently introduce the idea of change versus trying to throw them into the planning stage or expecting them to jump right into the action stage. Therefore, it can be very helpful to consider the stage a person is in when thinking about what the next steps should be to move toward change. Another insightful theory on health behavior is called social cognitive theory. Social cognitive theory is actually a popular theory of human behavior in general and has been applied to health behaviors specifically. This theory emphasizes the fact that we do most of our learning within a social context. That is, we learn a great deal from watching and interacting with other people. Much of our behavior and our habits are established through these social interactions and shaped by the way we think about ourselves in relation to others. A key idea from this theory is reciprocal determinism, which means that the interactions between people and their environments shape their behaviors. This is a good example of that complexity that we talked about on the Helicomplex episode. Human behavior is seen as the product of this dynamic interplay between personal factors, other behaviors, and environmental influences. And all of this is seen as taking place within social contexts like families and communities. Social cognitive theory is far too extensive to cover in full here, but I want to highlight some of the factors that are most useful. 
Self-efficacy is part of this theory as well. So again, we are reminded how important our beliefs about our ability to perform behaviors is when determining what we will actually do. Additionally, the things we learn by watching others are very influential. This is called observational learning. Observational learning can be very useful with regard to health behaviors in the form of role models. Having a positive role model to look to, especially for younger people still forming their identities, is extremely helpful. Social cognitive theory also highlights the role of something called self-regulation. Self-regulation is the term that we psychologists use to describe the process by which people control their behaviors when trying to achieve a particular outcome. It includes self-monitoring, goal-setting, feedback along the way, rewarding ourselves for milestones, self-instruction, and getting social support. All of these are a part of the process of self-regulation. We are going to have a future episode on goal setting where I'm going to dive deeper into self-regulation. Although the concept of self-regulation is a part of this theory, it is also expansive enough that it has been developed into its own theory of behavior. In fact, goal setting viewed through the lens of self-regulation is very helpful and was a large part of the foundation of my own dissertation research when I completed my doctoral training. I look forward to telling you more in depth about that in the future. Just know for now that methods and programs for better moving you toward your goals is something that psychologists have been working on. I'll share with you what that looks like and how far we've gotten in our understanding of what works. Another helpful idea from social cognitive theory is called collective efficacy. Not only can we have self-efficacy, meaning beliefs about our own personal ability to perform the behaviors necessary to bring about a particular outcome, we also hold beliefs about the social groups we belong to and their ability to perform actions together to bring about a desired outcome for us. For example, I might not feel like I have the ability on my own to change my eating habits. However, if I'm part of a family group who can help me by sharing in the burden of learning new recipes, preparing the food, and grocery shopping, that might make me believe that I am able to achieve the desired outcome through the collective effort of me and my family group. It is possible to have high collective efficacy even with low self-efficacy. In fact, they can balance each other out. This is another reason why community and social support is so important when it comes to health. In social cognitive theory, we also see mention of incentive motivation, meaning how people use rewards and punishments to shape health behavior. Should you use rewards and punishments to try to positively shape health behaviors? Many behaviorists would argue yes. But another very important theory of health behavior helps us understand why this could easily and will likely backfire. One of the most prominent and extensively studied theories of health behavior is self-determination theory. Self-determination theory argues that the most important forces to help people achieve meaningful changes in their health behavior are healthy motivation to change and feelings of competence. Healthy motivation is autonomous motivation, meaning 
motivation that comes completely from within the person performing the behavior. It is not driven by external sources or factors. In other words, the person is performing the behavior for themselves because they choose it. Healthy motivation might come from enjoyment of the behavior or from the fact that it aligns with core values or because the person sees it as a useful or beneficial behavior. As long as the reasoning comes from within the person performing the behavior, it is healthy motivation. If we perform a behavior to prove our worth to others, or we perform the behavior because there is external pressure being put on us, this is not healthy motivation. Furthermore, when we are trying to get some sort of external reward, that is also an external motivation. This is why using rewards to change our health behaviors is not very effective, particularly not for changing behaviors that you need to maintain over time. If we need external rewards to motivate us, eventually those rewards lose value or we cannot continue to use them to motivate us because the rewards themselves are not sustainable. If someone has a dinner party to celebrate a month of abstaining from drinking alcohol, it is probably not going to be that helpful to continue having dinner parties for every month of sobriety. Rewards can serve a purpose, especially to get us going in the beginning, but should not be our primary source of motivation. As you might have noticed, perceived competence is a very similar idea to self-efficacy. Both refer to the feelings we have regarding our ability to attain a health outcome by performing certain health behaviors. Again, we are being reminded about how important it is to consider our beliefs about our ability to perform the behavior in question and ultimately achieve the health outcome that we desire. When push comes to shove, one of the biggest things that holds people back from changing their health habits is not believing that they can change the behavior or not believing that if they did change the behavior, it would really have an effect on the outcome. A meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials using interventions to increase healthy motivation and perceptions of competence based on self-determination theory found that health behaviors did improve, indicating that healthy motivation and perceived competence play a causal role in driving health behaviors. In other words, when researchers increased people's feelings of healthy motivation to perform the behavior, making them more motivated from within, and increased their beliefs about their ability to perform the behavior, this ultimately increased the likelihood that people would engage in the healthy behavior. What is your motivation to change? This is a hugely important question to consider. Real and lasting change comes from healthy motivation. It must come from within the person who is doing the changing, out of their enjoyment or their core values or their beliefs in the benefits of the behavior. If the motivation to change comes from outside the person making the changes, this is a huge red flag. If you find yourself wanting to change, but when you consider the motivation, you realize it's because you feel pressured by other people 
or expectations outside of yourself, including the expectations you've internalized from others but did not grow out of your own core values, this is a recipe for disaster. It sets you up for failure and ultimately should prompt you to reevaluate whether it's a change you really want to make. We're going to take some time to better unpack these different aspects of motivation on a future episode. When talking about motivation, we are ultimately talking about the needs that underlie those motivations. Self-determination theory highlights three primary needs all humans have. The first is a need for autonomy. People need to feel like they are doing things out of their own volition because they are choosing to do so. People need to feel like they have the independence to choose their own behaviors. The second need is a need for competence. People have a need to feel like they can effectively perform behaviors to achieve desired outcomes. Lastly, people have a need for relatedness. People need to feel meaningfully connected to other people. Self-determination theory states that together, these three needs drive much of motivation and human behavior. It's important to think about these psychosocial aspects of motivation regarding behavior, especially when we are looking to change a health behavior. If the reason I am eating too many sweets is because I'm feeling lonely and disconnected from others, and I'm trying to soothe the distress from loneliness and an unmet need for relatedness, it's not going to be that helpful to tell me why it's beneficial to eat fewer sweets if the message fails to address what is driving that unhealthy behavior in the first place. Similarly, if I look at my own history and decide that I am not capable of changing this behavior, that will undermine my motivation to change ultimately making change unlikely and unsustainable. In this way, a person's unmet need for competence can undermine their ability to adopt healthy behaviors. There are also ecological theories of behavior, which focus on the influence of environmental factors, such as the neighborhood a person lives in or the media a person is exposed to. There is a lot of evidence indicating that these kinds of environmental factors significantly influence health behaviors, which is probably not surprising to anyone listening. Communities and media that provide good health education and positive role models increase the likelihood of people engaging in a healthy lifestyle. For me, some of the greatest insights I've gained into my own beliefs and behaviors around health have come from reflecting on the community and culture I was raised in, as well as the media I was exposed to during key stages of development. While we have not comprehensively covered all the important theories of health behavior, we have now highlighted many of the factors that have been found to be important to health behavior and which should be considered when attempting to make changes. Let's review these by talking through one last fictional example, hitting on all of the factors within this one example. Phoebe is a 29-year-old woman with a sedentary lifestyle and a high BMI and high blood pressure. Her doctor encourages her to increase her physical activity level because she is at greater risk for developing heart disease in the future. Will Phoebe be able to change her behavior and become more physically active? We all know that many people in this situation are not able to adopt a more active lifestyle. First, 
let's consider the health belief model. Does Phoebe think heart disease is a threat to her? This will depend on whether she believes she is susceptible to getting heart disease, as well as how severe an outcome she believes heart disease to be. If she thinks she is indeed susceptible to developing heart disease in the future, and that heart disease is a severe outcome, she will perceive a threat from heart disease. Next, we can consider whether Phoebe thinks becoming more physically active will benefit her in the future, making her less likely to get heart disease. If not, she won't be motivated to become more active. Next, and most importantly, what perceived barriers does Phoebe see to being more active? A very busy schedule? Being in a larger body and having difficulty moving it? Reducing or addressing any perceived barriers will greatly increase the likelihood of Phoebe becoming more physically active. Lastly, across the theories, we see the importance of Phoebe's beliefs regarding her ability to be more physically active, which as a reminder, is most often called her self-efficacy. If Phoebe does not believe she can be more active or stay active, these beliefs will be enough to stop her from adopting the behavior. The theory of reasoned action and theory of planned behavior remind us that we need to consider Phoebe's intentions. Will Phoebe have the intention to become more physically active in the first place? This depends on her attitudes toward physical activity and social norms she perceives around physical activity. If Phoebe has a bad attitude about exercise, if she views it as very unpleasant and something to be avoided, it will be incredibly hard for her to be motivated to be more active. Also, if Phoebe believes that most people her age are not more physically active than she is, meaning that she thinks a sedentary lifestyle is the norm for her peer group, she will also be less likely to increase her activity level. The trans-theoretical model teaches us that we need to consider Phoebe's readiness to change. Is she in the pre-contemplation phase, having not decided to change her behavior yet? Is she in the contemplation stage, seriously considering taking action within the next six months? Maybe she has taken some initial steps, but hasn't fully committed and is in the preparation stage. Perhaps she's already made serious changes and is now in the action stage. We know she isn't in the maintenance or termination stages. Knowing which stage Phoebe is at in terms of being ready to change her activity level will help us understand which factors are most likely to help her take the next steps in her journey. Social cognitive theory highlights that whether or not Phoebe will decide to become more physically active could depend on her role models and what she learns by watching others. If Phoebe's mother had gone through a similar experience a few years back and was able to successfully increase her own physical activity level, this will increase the likelihood that Phoebe will also be able to adopt a greater level of physical activity in her own life. We learn so much by watching others and having role models. Also, if Phoebe has high collective efficacy, meaning she believes that with the help of her peers or family members, she can effectively change her activity level, she will be motivated to take steps to become more active. Phoebe could also use some rewards to get her started. It would also be useful for Phoebe to set specific goals 
and engage in self-regulation behaviors, and we'll talk through what that would look like on a future episode. Teachings from self-determination theory guide us to more deeply consider Phoebe's needs and motivation. In order for Phoebe to successfully adopt a greater level of physical activity, her motivation must be a healthy one, meaning it must come from within and not be driven by external forces. If Phoebe fears her doctor's judgment if she stays sedentary, and that is why she wants to change this behavior, it will not successfully lead her toward change, especially not toward sustained change. Similar to what we talked about with self-efficacy, Phoebe also needs to feel she is competent enough to be physically active. Lastly, ecological theories of health behavior urge us to consider the neighborhood Phoebe lives in and the media she is exposed to. Is Phoebe's neighborhood one that makes being physically active easier? Does she have access to outdoor spaces that are safe and walkable? What about the media Phoebe consumes? Does that media teach her positive messages that will lead her toward healthier behaviors? Does it expose her to positive role models or help her form positive views of herself to increase her feelings of competence? Or does the media she consumes normalize unhealthy levels of physical activity, perhaps even glamorizing being inactive? Of course, in reality, all of these factors are in play at all times, but it is useful to identify the dynamics and factors that are most influential in any given moment. Perhaps Phoebe is being most influenced by her busy schedule, her peers who normalize being inactive, and the media she consumes that glamorizes sedentary behavior. Although all of the other factors we discussed would still be relevant, if these are the most influential at the moment, they are the ones she should focus on when trying to figure out how to change her behavior. I hope this example helps you start to see how In one scenario, all the different factors can be considered together. For Phoebe, everything is interconnected. The neighborhood she lives in will influence whether or not she has role models to look up to. The media she sees will influence her ideas about social norms. Everything is interconnected in reality. While it is helpful to break it apart and look at the scenario, thinking about the different aspects separately, it is equally helpful to piece it back together and see how these factors work in unison to push Phoebe either toward or away from healthy behavior. Because of the complexity in all of this, finding good health experts to guide you is a great tool. It is a lot to navigate on your own, but you need those health experts to have a deep understanding of all the things I have discussed today and more. This level of expertise only comes with rigorous training and education. On a future episode, I will discuss the best types of experts and the specific qualifications and characteristics you should seek, especially should you choose to pay for help with changing your health behaviors. I will also share about some apps and other technology-based services that are available to help you as well, some of which are very affordable and can be fun to use. On each episode of Hella Healthy, we focus on a topic that ultimately has implications for relevant health behavior changes. For example, I've already talked about stress and relationships. Adopting stress management techniques 
and making efforts to improve your relationships are examples of the healthy behavior changes associated with those two topics. Today's episode helps you begin to think more clearly about the things to consider if you want to address behaviors in your own life. The themes we've covered today will continue to show up throughout future episodes as I talk about health behaviors relevant to each topic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hella Healthy. I hope you find the concepts we've covered today useful in thinking about your own health behaviors. I know they've been helpful to me. I hope you will join me next week where I'll be talking about preventative medicine and overdiagnosis. Balancing the desire for prevention of disease with the desire to avoid unnecessary medical treatments can be very tricky. I'll be covering methods for weighing the pros and cons of various options and how to best understand risk. This is something few people have a firm grasp of, but everyone needs to know in order to best manage their own health and make informed health choices. I look forward to sharing that information with you. That's all for today's discussion. Have a hella great day and please remember to be kind.